Back to the Deeper Dive podcast, produced locally in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Washington D.C. Here at Roman, Ca- sorry, here at Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church in the Plate of Maryland. My name is Bill Winnell. As usual, joined by Father Larry Swink. Good afternoon, Father. Hey, Bill. Good afternoon. And Monsignor Charles Pope. Monsignor, how are you? Good. I'm, I'm in good shape for the shape that we're in. Very good. Today we're gonna gonna discuss the um, um, the Holy Father's rather curious choice to head the. Uh, dicastery of faith uh, in Rome. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about who that person is and what the dicastery does and the deposit of faith in general. Father Larry. Okay. All right. Well, you know, Bill, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of uh, thank you for this podcast. You're the first one who told me about this uh, this appointment, and um, I, I was rather upset about this appointment. I think many priests were, um, because uh, the, the guy that they put in charge of this, I uh, just I don't know. It just didn't seem like the perfect fit to say the least uh, for someone to teach the faith because some of the things that he writes and the way he speaks about certain matters. And I wanted to talk about regardless of this appointment, how, what it means to be Catholic and what the deposit of faith is, which is a very important, um, you know, uh, theological truth that we have is that God has given us these revealed truths that will, are unchangeable regardless of what people's opinions are. And Monsignor Pope's going to help me uh, flesh this out. But basically uh, what happened is that uh, last week, Archbishop Victor Emmanuel Fernandez was elected uh, the new prefect of the Castro, the Doctrine of Faith. So basically, like, you know, since he's going to kind of be in charge of, you know, putting out the teaching of the church to us. And um, and uh, I guess the thing that was kind of, uh, I guess, everyone scratch their heads one of his books that came out is heal me with your mouth the art of kissing which uh i don't think any priest should be uh talking about the art of kissing uh as a as a cleric we're not supposed to kiss uh <laughs> unless it's your mom on the cheek you know um so monsignor what was your response to this and then i want to go into this this you know the importance of telling our listeners about, you know, regardless of this appointment, uh, maybe, well, first off, what are some of the concerns you have, but maybe we're, we don't want to be alarmist, but at the same time, just, you know, sober. And then what are things that we have to be very clear about as Catholics, regardless of where this is going to, uh, how this is going to turn out in the, in the future, which hopefully it won't turn out as bad as people think, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I, um, let's just start, you know, maybe at, at the personal level, I was deeply saddened to hear this appointment. I knew that it was likely to be coming. I know that a lot of people were trying to communicate with Pope Francis in Rome prior to this in the, in the couple of months where these rumors had been out there saying, please, this is not a good idea. Um, I think one, one way to guarantee Francis will not do, uh, you know, one of the words, when you tell Francis not to do something, he's going to more than likely just his personality is going to more than likely do it. Um, but all that said, now, let me ask you a question. I, you know, I, I think the answer would be obvious for both of us. If either you or I had published a book on the art of kissing, um, I think we'd probably be called downtown for a come to Jesus meeting and 
<laughs> we'd, we'd, be, we'd be talking about things like prudence. Um, right. Why would a celibate man be writing such a thing and so on? We certainly wouldn't be getting promoted to the dicastery of, uh, of divine of, of doctrine, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it's just very, very strange. He claims that he had... You know he's 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 right. He writes this as a celibate. He, he was actually, of all things, writing it as some kind of a guide for teenagers. I mean, I, I mean, the excerpts I've read are, are nothing short of a horrifying. They they contain words like the B word and or you know, you know, and how you know, it's very very strange. It's just really. It isn't just sexually immodest, but it's it's just. At times, it treats a woman as though she were, I don't know, anyway, wrong for being beautiful. He, you know, uses the B word in there. You know, a lot of different things, and I, I just, I just can't see how one can defend this, except to say, well, I, except the only way I could think he could say that would make me feel any better would be, look, I was young, I was imprudent when I wrote that. I wouldn't do that today. Um, I think that uh, that's a, you know, I, I, I would, I, I hope you'll consider me excused from this topic, you know, but I, I, that he didn't really say that either. So at any rate, that's the one thing. Uh, but I think the things that are more alarming are some of the things that he's been saying um, here, you know, recently, and we can talk about those if you, if you want to, uh, but he's given a couple of interviews already and it doesn't uh, look good for our side, so to speak. Mm, yeah. Can you need one? Let's just kind of go to one of the quotes. Well, I'll give you this one here. First of all, um, this is from. Um, I'll just read to you a. Uh, he was interviewed uh, by a Roman um, info Vaticana, uh, and it, this is what he says regarding um, a so-called gay marriage. At one level, I think he says some things that are appropriate, but then he what he gives, he sort of takes back. It says here, <clears throat> look, he says uh, the. Um, I'm sorry. Let me just, here's the question that was given to him. In 2021, this dicastery affirmed that homosexual couples cannot be blessed. Do you agree? And so he responds, look, just as I am firmly against abortion, and I challenge you to find someone in Latin America who's written more articles than me against abortion, I also understand that marriage, in the strict sense, is only one thing. That stable union of two human beings as different as a man and a woman and uh, who in that difference are capable of engendering new life. There is nothing to compare with that. And to use that name to express something else is neither good nor right. At the same time, I think we should avoid gestures or actions that might express something different. That is why I think the greatest care should be taken to avoid, to avoid rights or blessings that could feed that confusion. But now if a blessing is given in such a way that it does not cause that confusion, it will have to be analyzed and confirmed. As you will see, there is a point at which we move away from a properly theological discussion uh, to a question that is rather prudential or disciplinary. Well, first of all, just my immediate reaction to the last sentence is, well, sir, that isn't the prudential and disciplinary stuff isn't your department. Your department is, in fact, the theological discussion and it's the doctrine of the faith that we've got in mind here. So, right. but beyond that, he basically leaves the door open. Now, my question is, uh, how do you bless something that's intrinsically sinful? Now, what I mean by that is 
we're going to have to just presume that so-called gay marriages and put that there's my air quotes for the you know because people can't see me uh that it you know it, 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 it implies that they're having ongoing sexual intimacy of the kind which god speaks of as not only sinful but as an abomination along with fornication adultery other sexual sins so let's say that we had two people heterosexuals all shacked up uh living together like that could we have a blessing for that we shouldn't know that would be wrong because what we're doing is blessing something that's sinful you can't bless something that's sinful you can't call it good you can't call good or no big deal what god calls sin and this seems to me this idea that you could even leave the door open uh that there might be some way that wouldn't sow confusion that we could bestow blessings uh, uh it would strikes me as well to use his terms imp imprudent well i think yeah and i I agree with you. I, I think that, um, I mean, thanks be to God, he's pro-life and he spoke out against abortion, which wasn't really mm -hmm. a question. And I and thank, thank God for that. And, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. and he, he did, you know, he did say that marriage is what it is. But I think it's, see, the problem we, we, we face a lot of times is like, you know, do we compromise here in, in certain situations is, is really the underlying question. Mm -hmm. I think I think one of the things we've been sort of talking about it's interesting because last week we talked about, you know, basically we can't compromise when it comes to marriage and what it is and that, you know, gay marriage is really not, those two words don't are, don't go together because they're, they're, as you explained, it just doesn't, it's not what it is. It's not marriage at all. So I guess the question is maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, um, the job of a theologian, right, which I would say he, he would be considered a theologian is to allow the faithful to understand the faith that's been presented to us by christ correct so it, it is the, the school i mean and i think john paul ii in, in um what was it uh faith and reason was that fides ratio spoke about that theologians are not to like come up with new stuff because there is no new stuff and they're to take what's already been given to us from christ and the apostles and to better explain so we can live it and understand it, correct? Yes. So let's, yes let's, so let's talk about sort of, not that it's disputed, but I've read some articles and there's been rumors about how sometimes people now kind of poo-poo the, the, the uh, you know, theological, uh, for, you know, or truth about what a, the deposit of faith. Now I'm going to give you my like second grade way of understanding it and then maybe – Monsignor, you give a maybe a, a more college or seminary uh, approach to it. But uh, St. Jose Maria, when he talked about the deposit of faith, is he said, pretend for a moment that I'm Christ and you're Peter, right? And uh, I'm about to go up to heaven. I'm going to send to heaven. And I have this like treasure chest. And I, I pass it to you. And I say, all right, look, you know, Peter, uh, in here is everything you need to get to heaven. You don't need anything more, anything less. Uh, there's just two rules, right? Uh, you're not to add to it and not to subtract from it, but you can explain what's in it better as the years progress. You know, and then in year to give those marching orders to the next next pope and bishops, so on and so forth, till today. Yeah. Um, and basically, I mean, uh, things that have been proclaimed as truths, uh, whether through the divine law or the natural law, are not to be messed with. They're just unchanging truths. But the job of theology is to explain in a deeper way what these mean and help us to how do we apply these to our particular lives. So how would you define 
uh, deposit of faith. Monsignor? Well, I'm, I'm going to compete with uh, St. Jose Marie Escrivain, or, uh, but and you've also done a very good job of uh, presenting it. I think that what we want to say is that one of the things that the church has often repeated is that revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. So we know that Christ left a content to his teaching called the deposit of faith. And as you said, it's like a treasure chest. And he said um, <clears throat> he never wrote a book. Um, and even he never even told them to write books, but thank God they did. But but let's be clear about one thing that I, I, I you know, the, not only is it the four Gospels that record what Jesus said, but remember, he said to his apostles, who hears you, hears me. So we see that the four Gospels, two were written by evangelists and two were written by apostles who were also evangelists. But we also have to understand that when when Paul writes and when uh, Peter writes epistles, and when, when James wrote an epistle and John wrote epistles, that this too is part of the what Christ has said. Because he said, who hears you is hearing me. So when we talk about this treasure chest, I, I think we have to remember it's not just the four Gospels or not just what Jesus said um, when he was alive. Um, but up to that death of the last apostle, um, that he's continued to speak through them. Okay. So that's the only thing I would like to clarify. Now, the reason I, I say this is that sometimes I'll get somebody who comes up to me and says, Oh, you know, Jesus never said anything about uh, homosexuality and you're all obsessed about it. So well, I'm not obsessed with it. You're the one who demands you're in my face constantly demanding that I, I put on an, a rainbow. Uh, so I don't think I'm obsessed, but beyond that, Jesus never said anything about rape either. I think we talked about this before, but I want to emphasize that. The deposit of faith, what Jesus said and taught, is revealed to us through his apostles. Now, remember, when he, before he ascended, he said to the apostles, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will clarify me. He will glorify me, more literally. But also, he will remind you of everything that I have said and done, okay? So that when John finishes his apostle, his gospel, he says, these things, there are many other things Jesus said and did that aren't recorded in this particular gospel, but these have been revealed so that you may come to believe that he is the Christ, and in this faith you may be saved. But nevertheless, there's there's always the understanding that the, the entire work of the New Testament is inspired. And we don't just, therefore, when we talk about this treasure chest that Jesus leaves, is just the four gospels but also some other areas where the apostles later clarified things. He obviously taught them and the Holy spirit was reminding them of what he said and did. And therefore, uh, no, Jesus never mentions homosexuality, by the way, he doesn't mention rape, etc. So, uh, but Paul does. Um, and we see also again that, um, you know, he, he mentions it very explicitly and a very strong condemnation so that when we hear Paul, we're hearing Christ who had the gospel infused into him. Okay, so I don't mean to go on too long with this point, but I just want to make sure that everybody understands this treasure chest that Jesus hands over isn't just the collected sayings of the gospel, but it includes all the epistles as well. Okay? Right. Now, uh, good. I think, I hope I answered the question, Father. No, I like that. And I think that's, that's what we're looking at. And um, I think here I was looking at um, the... This book that you let me borrow, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, 
by Ludwig Ott. Uh -huh. And um, he goes on to say that uh, he talks about Catholic truce. And he says the purpose of the magisterium, which is the majority of church, is to preserve an adulterated truth of revelation and interpret these infall infallibly. The primary objection of the teaching office of the church is the body of immediately facts. However, the infallible doctrinal power of the church extends secondly to all those truths and facts which are of a, a consequence of the teaching of revelation or a presupposition. These doctrines and truths defined by the church, not as immediately revealed, but as intrinsically connected with the truths of revelation, so their denial would undermine the revealed truth. So anyway, I, I think he makes his point that not everything is explicitly in scripture. It's been handed down to us. And that's, you know, tradition is something that's always been handed down to us. And it's, it's always been the same. And, um, you know, marriage between a man and woman, that's just comes to us from even the Old Testament. But it was reaffirmed by Christ and the gospel very clearly. And today it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we keep this marriage going in a culture that's completely undermined what matrimony is, right? Right. Um, so I guess the question is this, what's the difference between a doctrine and a dogma? You know, I, I, I think that that's debated. And I, I like to say they're pretty much the same. Now, I'm not saying it's a distinction without any difference. I think we could say in a general way that doctrines are more solemnly affirmed because they come as the result of a council and a solemn affirmation that comes from that. Um, whereas, um, you know, doctrines are more broadly found in both scripture and the received tradition and so on. They may not have uh, received some kind of a canon or something out of scripture, but I think we should regard them as pastorally speaking as pretty much the same. I've heard all kinds of people try to whittle down the difference and so on. There's overlap, I think is the thing I would want to emphasize. And I would see that a dogma might be something, if you were to go through Ludwig Ott's book, there's going to be some things in there which uh, he teaches, or he gives a, what's called a, uh, a theological um, a label to it. Uh, so de fide definita means it, this is of the faith defined. And what defined means like, for example, those councils and so on that hammered out the incarnation, the two natures of Christ, the one, uh, the idea of personhood, the Trinity. Um, and, and so, so many of those early councils where the creeds were actually hammered out and written, uh, de fide definita, no doubt there. Um, there are other things that were taught in councils and said, but were never given, um, maybe a canon or, a an absolute, you know, we hereby define state and declare that, uh, Jesus is one, is one person with two natures. And if anyone will say otherwise, anathema sit. There's your dogmas. Not every doctrine of the church received that kind of language. And so I think that's probably the best um, way to distinguish the two. But I think there's a lot of overlap. And they both deserve uh, our, uh, our, our faith and a full ascent of mind and heart. Right. And, so, and, and there, there were, I mean, obviously there have been, um, you know, times in the church where we've had to take something that's a doctrine that everyone believed and make it quote unquote a dogma uh, by firming up the language. So to speak, right? so an example of that would be, you know, with the Eucharist, we've always believed it was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And when new sort of 
uh, Protestant theology came in, you know, through Luther, they said, all right, look, no, it, the word yeah, is double down. transubstantiation. So would that be something that's a doctrine turned into a dogma? Yeah. And of course, you see, those things have canons associated with them. For example, if uh, usually they start out like, tequis dixerit, et cetera, et cetera, anathema sit. So if anyone will say that the full substance of the bread and the full substance of the wine are transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. If anyone will say this is not the case, let them be anathema. So, in other words, that's what's called a canon. You know, they just like you know, it's it's a, you think of it in both senses with two ends, a canon blow, blowing away any any right. opinions right. to the contrary, not and and likewise excluding those who hold such positions from uh, the ability to say that they're part of our community any longer, are part of our faith. Right. So. Right. Those are uh, particular things that receive canons directed against them. Um, uh, so that would be, and and the church tends to define to, to define things only when they're attacked. Otherwise, we presume a kind of a sensibility of the faith, and when it's attacked, then we have to define. And uh, like the Catholic uh, when they attack mm -hmm. you know, the uh, yeah. the divinity of Christ, right? right. So that would be. A, mm -hmm. a, a doctrine turned dogma. Okay, so that, that makes sense. It's just sort of, but I mean, but on the flip side, we're not to treat doctrine as anything that's changeable. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that seems, that seems to be kind of like yeah. the ongoing saga is like we're always, mm -hmm. I, I, just, I just kind of long for the time when someone asks a bishop, hey, you know, what do we, what do you say about gay marriage? Like, it's just not biblical and we're never going to abide by it. Next question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, end of story. I mean, like, yeah. I, I can't. Or will there ever be women priests? No. Mm -hmm. Next no. I, I, yeah. I, I, that's, that's that's doctrine. Well, actually, I think the women priests is dogma. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. Pope Pope Pope. Uh, you know, John Paul. He definitely used the language. He invoked the office, and he he uh, he said this to be held as definitive that the church has no authority whatsoever to ordain women. And, um, you know, he invoked his office. He invoked the, the need that uh, to confirm the brethren and in order to remove all doubt, um, he expects that the, pe the people are to be to, to, to definitively hold that the church has no authority to confer orders on women. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's going to be some who will, you know, beef about this or that word. But at the end of the day, I think it's it's very, very clear. Even by the way. In one of his plain interviews, and again, it's just a plain interview, but when directly asked this question, Pope Francis, about whether a woman could be ordained a priest, Francis said, well, one of my predecessors pretty well handled that. It's done. You know, yeah, he himself I, seems I, to right, hold that right. view. Mm -hmm. Praise God for that, because, I mean, there there have been some times where the Holy Father has been saying, no, it can't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's almost like, it's like this feather. Well, what about, can we do this? Well, let's look into it. And it's like, no, I mean, doctrine and dogma are what they are. You know, we can't, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. the question is, how do we deal with these problems if yeah. theology can help us? Right. Uh, and by the way, um, I want to go back to something you said earlier and could give you another quote from the new, the new prefect for the dicastery. Um, I, one of the dangers, I think, that you've already pointed out is that we some people want doctrines and dogmas to be kind of like well fuzzy and open to interpretations of various sorts that sort of uh, you know and and they kind of want to turn Jesus into you know Jesus didn't propose for us to be vague about whether he was the lord 
Um, and um, he wasn't walking around talking in abstractions and generalities. Like, hey, man, do good, avoid evil. Um, he was very, very clear about many things, and he expects to be taken seriously. However, there are those today who go, oh, tisk tisk, you're all worried about the details. And uh, to which I reply, yes, I am. The details are important, especially when they've been taught to us explicitly. Now, here's something, though, that unfortunately in the interview, um, the newly, this is a quote from, uh, this is a quote from Diane Montagna. Uh, who's quoting from uh, another thing called Catholic Stat. But anyway, um, the newly appointed prefect for the dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, Tucho, that's his nickname, Tucho <laughs> Fernandez, on his new role. He says, I accepted my, my new role with joy, even though I know I will have many who will be against me. But you see, there are some people who prefer a more rigid, structured way of thinking who and who are at war with the world. Well, you're darn right I'm at war with the world. Jesus told me to be. He says, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I've called you out of the world. The world's going to hate you. See? And we, we're, not, we're not to be, Book of James says, a friend of the world is an enemy to God. So I, I'm sorry if it comes down to Tucho or James and, uh, and Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus every day. And Tucho, you take a number. And you want to call me rigid? Fine. But at the end of the day, I want to say... That I am supposed to be at war with the world. Now, that doesn't mean I'm running around shaking my fist at everyone. That's not, you know, let's not turn it into a cartoon. But I know, and you know, that the in the Bible, the word world is almost never used in, in a positive way. Occasionally, it means the, what God has made. In that sense, it's beautiful and good. Occasionally, it's just the theater of our redemption where we live. But almost always, especially in the Gospel of John, but in all the scriptures, the world is that set of forces arrayed against God and his teachings. And um, yes, I, I am at war with that world and I need to be. And that's what I've been told to be. So I think here and then then this just is calling me rigid. That's an oldest trick in the book. You know, back when I was in seminary, back in the early 80s, they were using that word. They'd say, oh, you're just you need to go away. You have a psychological problem. And I'm sorry. Uh, I, I do think that clarity and certainty uh, are important qualities for what we would call the, 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 the positive faith and the divine teachings of our Lord. And I grew up with all this fuzzy catechism where we made felt banners. And, you know, I, I had to be raised in that. And I, I went to the uh, seminary not even knowing all 10 commandments. I, I could have given you a few, but I couldn't have given you all 10. So I'm sorry. Um I, I take I could take a little offense at this quote from the new you know prefect, and um, we're not off to a good start, shall we say? Right, and I think this this word rigidity, you know, it has to be explored a bit. And um, I, I was I was looking once again at Ludwig Ock's book, and he said mm -hmm. St. Pius X rejected the liberal Protestant and modernist doctrine of the evolution of religion through new revelations, quote unquote. Thus he condemned the proposition that quote revelation constituted the object of the Catholic faith was not completed with the apostles unquote. And as you, as you pointed out, Monsignor is that it, it, the, that Catholic um, doctrine came to us from the apostles and there's no, further need of revelation right like we, everything we everything we everything that has been posed to us is all we need uh for our salvation and for knowing the truth and living it 
Um, but there is a serious need for theology, but it just seems like the frustration is the theology that's coming out, I think, from, I don't know, from different aspects of Rome is highly confusing to the lay faithful because they're scratching their head saying, well, I know marriage is this, but this is this. And what the heck is it? You know, it can't be both. And I'm not saying like, was that in absolutely his intention? I don't know. Uh, but it's, I think the beautiful thing about being Catholic is that certain things are simply just black and white. Yes. And I, I remember like, I remember so many people telling me when I was a younger priest, I'm not that old, but you know, when I was first ordained, they're like, father, you're so black and white, you know, life's kind of gray. And I'm like, well, that's precisely why I'm preaching black and white because Amen. your life has become a blur. Yeah. I mean, it's not, the faith is not obscure. It's not something, you know, it's, it's very, um, it's very reasonable. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, we have to, well, I, once again, I think with the desire for many of the lay faithful is they just want just basic, you know, leader to say, Hey, what do I need to get to heaven and just make it plain for me? You know? And, uh, and I think that's, that's the role of theology, faith seeking understanding. And there is no, there is no need of future revelation. So, I mean, uh, do you have, I mean, how do we deal with this when you, you know, when you, you know, you read these types of things and we, I think we've dealt with this a lot in the last 10 years or so where you hear something and they're like, wait, that's not really what the church teaches. And you're sitting there scratching your head and it's not an official teaching. So, all right, here's a question. The document that comes out from this office, is that infallible? Well, I mean, that, that would depend a lot, I guess, on whether it's proposed for belief and signed um, formally by the Pope. I would say no, not of itself, no. But it would it would require a lot of other things to be attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, so. Right. Now, but okay, here's the other thing that I wanted to kind of follow up on what you were saying is that um, this, this, let's all, let's all be aware of a certain tendency that we all have in us because we all have this thing called the flesh. I don't mean our bodies, but that rebellious spirit. Part of us, Father, you, you know, we have to accept that part of us loves ambiguity. Well, I don't know who's to say there's lots of opinions out there. And, you know, that way we don't have to sort of commit. You know, and we kind of love the ambiguity. Now, again, hopefully for some of us who are responsive to grace, we come to finally say, but look, there is an answer and I have to have the courage to live it, you know. Um, but but there, there is this strong tendency uh, that people like things vague. And that so I think that's the first thing, just every human being, because we have this thing called the flesh, that part of us that's rebellious, that doesn't like to be told what to do. It's always looking for some, well, they didn't quite phrase it this way. They phrased it that way. We're always parsing, always looking for little ways out. And we all have some of that in us, except right. for me, of course. You know, I'm, I'm perfect. But, uh, <laughs> but, but beyond that, we also have, I think that one of the things we have to accept about what we've come to call the left, and I don't want to just apply uh, political labels simply to the church, but there is. There, this stuff bleeds out from the world into the church. That the for the left, the point is ambiguity. The point is chaos. This is how you sow anarchy and you bring things down. Um, and then, you know, you can take the upper hand through power. 
rather than, you know, people lose their common sense about things. So the point, like, for example, even at the border, you know, don't they know that uh, however many million have come across and don't they know the chaos and the confusion? And uh, yes, that's the whole point. The chaos and the confusion is the point. Uh, so I think somewhere this bleeds into the church, too. And I think this idea of stirring the pot and keeping things vague and raising questions and being sort of ambiguous and so on is part of a strategy. Is it is it is it something that there there's a conscious strategy here, or is it is it just that this is kind of the the nature of you know the the our fallen nature at work? I don't know. I'm not here to personally judge people, but I'm going to just say there are a lot of people who love chaos, who love confusion, who love ambiguity. And wanted to stay there. And, uh, and there are some of us that say, but we have to be courageous to stand before the truth and to know that as you said, Father, there is black and white. There aren't, and not everything is gray. There are, there are things that are just, the answer is clear. Here, here it is. And you're either going to live it or you're going to reject it and you'll face consequences either way. Right. Monsignor, right. I, I asked um, a, a priest of this diocese one time, um, the, the following question that I'd like to ask you, he, he, um, <clears throat> he kind of uh, let me know very quickly that, that my perception was wrong and hope maybe you might do the same. And I fully accept that. A, a lot of people of late look at other, other um, um, hierarchies in the church like ours. And let's just say for this argument, the Orthodox, um, <clears throat> And I, and I realized it's hard to pigeonhole them under a one collective umbrella because they are, you know, they are, they are many. But that being said, why does the, why, why is there an appearance that this kind of thing where that appears where different um, members of the church hierarchy in orthodoxy, it doesn't seem that there, there's many or out of step, or at least that it's reported out of step from orthodoxy itself. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry. Are you asking me or Father Larry? I'm sorry. Uh, I'll I'll start with you. I I, I just it okay. appears you know it appears they're okay. structurally they're similar to us. Um, mm. Dogmatically, they're okay. similar, but it yeah. just appears a lot of this stuff okay. is not there. Okay. Well, now I'm going to tread into some dangerous waters, uh, but here I go. Uh, I would say no. I, I think. You are mistaken at one level, and it's, about, it's more about impressions than about whether you have the completely wrong-headed idea. Among the Orthodox, well, let me just tell you a personal story, and then I'll go from there. If you go, as I have, to Jerusalem, um, or you go to the Holy Land, um, there's two churches that are just full of hostility. The, in Bethlehem, Church of the Nativity, and also Jerusalem, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You have about three or four different branches of the Orthodox. Now, they hate each other almost more than they hate us, but they all agree on one thing. They hate Roman Catholics. But they debate among each other about all kinds of things. And the pro part of the problem is that many of them are national churches. Right, right? the so cultural they, part. You got the Greeks, the Russians, and so on. And they tend to be bring a lot of the nationalist stuff into their debates. But beyond that, even more, you know, I think that they have departed from the ideals that uh, I think, for example, we are right on priestly celibacy and they have compromised and set it aside. I don't mean historically, but clearly the Lord and St. Paul have a strong preference for priestly celibacy and for that of the life of virgins as well. 
um, that it's a strong, you know, it, it's not just, you know, skip it or we don't have to worry about it. I think we're right on that. Likewise, the use of leaven versus unleavened bread. We are right on that. I'm just going to say it. Um, Jesus did not use unleavened bread. I mean, he used, he used unleavened bread at the Last Supper. And although we're not rigidly struck stuck with, you know, to use white or red, actually it was white zin, but at the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, so my point is that without becoming utterly rigid, but I think there, and likewise, there's some, some issues with regards um, a, a divorce and remarriage, and, and there's, there's debates among them. And I would say, if you, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, it looks like they're all wonderfully rooted in the tradition. They have no doctrinal debates and so on. That's just not true. And uh, it's sometimes more subtle, but they're not as much in the news and their inner workings aren't like the Vatican because they're all divided in, you know, eight or nine different ways. Um, and there isn't really one go-to thing that you all look to. So I think all of this creates the impression that there is um, an attachment to orthodoxy there that isn't. Um, and it's just too small to see. Yeah. Anyway, I... And I, I probably broke about three or four rules of ecumenism there, but um, I hope you still um, sleep tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and one more question. I was you're just somebody... so ri you're so rigid, Monster. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I think we've already established that. Um, yeah, right. Now, how much? How much? Not not to you know blame any uh, shift any blame, but how much of this what we've been talking about today specifically, and kind of the things that constantly are coming out of the back. Vatican. How much of this can we blame on the the fact that you know uh, we we have the internet and it's a twenty four hour news cycle, even in the Catholic Church now, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that things that would have made the news twenty five years ago, number one, would have taken a year maybe mm -hmm. to come out. I mean, how much is isn't don't can't we blame some of this on or not blame is the wrong word, but certainly attribute mm -hmm. some of this to that very thing. Yeah. Um if you're directing it to me first, fine, I'll then I'll pitch it to Father Larry. But I I think that it goes both ways, though. Part of it is yes. I mean, it, up until about 150 years ago, the Pope was a fairly remote figure to most the average Catholic in the pew. Or, you, you know, so if Pope so-and-so said something crazy, it almost never made it all the way down to the average Catholic in, say, um, um, a village in France or somewhere here in America. Um, whereas now, yeah, it's, it's, it's here before it's even finished being uttered, you know, boom. Um, so yes, there is that side of it, but the other side of it is that some of this is being used, not just by the, the Pope or the Vatican or anybody, but it's used by everybody. This instant communication to kind of lob grenades, to send out test balloons. And the fact of the matter is here we are. And so it isn't just that we no more but that people are actually using it to tweak us and uh, that's why i think yesterday's reading paul kind of gives us a caution you know <laughs> whatever's good whatever true whatever's noble whatever's beautiful you know think on these things that was in yesterday's mass here in america anyway for the feast of uh, the feast the um re remembrance of uh, independence day and i think sometimes all we do is look at all the blood guts and gore <laughs> of the internet, which I hope we're not simply stirring up gratuitously here, but we have to have these conversations. And I think somewhere it does cut both ways, but maybe Father Larry has some good insights. 
Right. I, I, I think, uh, Bill, that um, obviously it's a different world than what we lived in. Father Larry, hold on. Be honest. How many people texted you that that article or that news that I sent you? Uh, I probably got it from, well, I'm in it. Uh, I went in this chain chain text thing and like you know it went out pretty quick so i i've got a couple people wasn't that many okay uh, i i think a lot of people were not aware of of uh i think priests are more in touch with sort of the background to this than the average lay person but uh every once in a while i'll get i mean like i get a story and like 15 people like what is this all about and um i think uh you know kind of piggyback what monsignor is saying is that um, yeah, things are different and we get things immediately. And I think there's, there's good and bad about that. And sometimes more bad than good, because sometimes we become very reactionary. We don't get the whole story. It's taken out of context, you know, I, uh, that you, you never know what you're really reading, uh, because there's always a twist to media. However, I think that because we live in such a tech savvy, you know, um, world, which is going to get increasingly more so. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine it's going to be in 50 years from now when I'm dead, you know, how people are going to be living. There's going to be no secrets whatsoever. Um, I think there has to be a precision of language when you're speaking as a member of the church. So, for instance, if someone were to, you know, pull me aside, if I'm like walking outside, like, hey, Father Larry, what's your opinion on X, Y, and Z? Well, if I'm on TV with a collar, okay, everyone's looking at me as this is the Catholic answer. You know, I, I and 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 I, that that is especially true with the bishop. Is that you know it, it doesn't matter. Like your opinions don't matter. But I also think that a cleric, his opinions should be in line with the church. That's just what we are. We are in love with the truth, and that what we our opinions should match. You know, I mean, what do we? We're ordained deacons. You know, what is it? Believe what you need. You know. Uh, practice you know teach what you read practice what you preach you know i mean like i i I just wonder if i think there's a fundamental lack of faith that is sort of uh, permeated uh in in the hierarchy i mean not in the hierarchy but even among priests and i i love that line from sacred scripture it's on easter and even the priests began to believe you know i think or maybe it's pentecost (laughs) even the priests began to believe it's a wonderful line yeah yeah so my answer is like yeah, I think things are different, and I think we also have to take these things. We have to step back, and I'm not trying to say like what he said is terribly wrong, and maybe he just said too much. But I think I think there has to be people saying, "Hey, look, just say what needs to be said, and no more." Like, don't add that extra. I mean, everything that quote that Monsignor read was perfect until he said "but," you know, and then he's like. And then once you say but, it's like, oh, no. I mean, there are no buts when it comes to, you know, Catholic doctrine. And um, I think you could say, you know, pastorally speaking, we might have to find ways to, to, you know, help these people. But, you know, blessing is out of the question, period, end of story. So I think precision in language, when and that's true with anyone that's listening, that you're in, in, in the, if you have a blog or you are doing something online, you have to be very careful about what you put on there as a Catholic. Yeah. And you, you don't, you don't have the right to just put your opinion out there, you know, in the public sphere. I, that's, that's my point of view on that. Amen. Yeah. But, you know, it occurs to me that, um, yeah. And this isn't just with Pope Francis. This goes back all the way to John Paul. I think that too many, uh, popes are giving too many interviews 
Um, now it comes to many years ago, I was on Raymond Arroyo's show and, you know, I, it occurred to me that at that moment to say this, that we are, according to the teachings of the church to give religious submission of mind and heart to even the non-infallible teachings of the Pope. If that's true, which it, 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 I think it's, it, it certainly comes right out of the second Vatican council, if not before, then I think there's a sacred trust between the Pope and God's good people, such that he would be very, very, very careful about what he says and say less, not more. Um, and um, that, uh, yeah, and 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 you know, but unfortunately, there's all this. How what's the average cat supposed to do when the Pope in some radio interview or? even worse on an airplane but responding to reporters says something that's a little shall we say um too loosey-goosey it, it needs to be tightened up and oh but look what the pope said i know but you know and and, and the average catholic shouldn't have to sit there and say well is this an infallible is this really something that he's proposing for my belief or is it just his opinion off the cuff to some reporter on an airplane uh, I think somewhere that's not fair to God's good people. I don't simply, again, point to Francis. Uh, you know, we might remember a couple of times uh, Pope Benedict got into some trouble with interviews, you know, seeming to give the carte blanche for some contraception in certain cases among nuns in Africa. I don't know. I forget all that. And other things that he said at Regensburg that were misunderstood. And we're just, you know, and then before that, John Paul got into some issues with uh, some of the things he said to reporters and, all I can say is that I don't I don't want to entirely tie the hands of uh, of of the Pope or the bishops um, because we want them to speak on current issues of of a moral nature and give the Catholic teaching. But that's the point. Be very careful, especially if you're a bishop or the Pope, to give the Catholic teaching without ambiguity. And maybe this means that therefore it should be carefully vetted by various Vatican offices or the diocesan offices so that these things are carefully stated and the, 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 the faithful are not misled. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know ourselves, Monsignor, we, we are told at a diocesan level when the news comes out, we have to like, I think if the news asks us like the Washington mm -hmm. post, we, mm -hmm. have to call the, we have to call downtown and like, can I do this interview or not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and many times like, no, don't do that. It's a trap. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I respect that, but I do think there has to be some parameters where mm -hmm. whereby maybe it's a matter of protecting these cardinals and, you know, from, from these interviews that are just maybe mm -hmm. creating more havoc than we think. And maybe, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I think sometimes sure. like, you know, there's gotta be a, a, a spokesperson and, what he meant to say is, is <laughs> mm -hmm. the following. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm also trying, go ahead. Well, I also, I've, I think people also want to know, like, you know, when something is, it's very clear that it's been misunderstood by the whole world or <laughs> apparently quote unquote unheard. Exactly. Where's the clarification? Yes. Yes. From the media saying, no, what, all right, this is what was said, but in the, this is what really was meant to be conveyed. Yes. And as the church teaches, but sometimes we don't get that. And I think you could do that. I think there has to be an office <laughs> in the Vatican that says, okay, this well, there is. is. Yeah. And he talked off the cuff, you know, it was a little bit, but this is what the church. So there's no <laughs> confusion and a story, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, and this is on Francis, I think, you know, he, he doesn't, 
like anybody else speaking for him. He wants to speak for himself, and he chooses to leave a lot of things up in the air and confusing and ambiguous. And the and the and the Roman press office, whose job it is, just what you said, to con- kind of well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, okay, look, um, here's you know here's the final word on this because you know there was some confusion created. He doesn't really go with that, and um, they're they're as frustrated as anybody from what I'm told. Um, but I, I want to also, though, be a little sympathetic to both bishops and even the Pope. At one level, we Catholics complain, they're our clergy, they never say a word, they're hiding out. What about, we need to hear from the bishop, we need to hear from the priest, you know. So on the one hand, we're going like that. On the other hand, when they do get in there and get in the mix, then, you know, there's criticisms like we're making right now. And I, I, I do want to at least be, you know, sympathetic. So somewhere... I think certainly at the level of the priest, I think we need to be very clear with our people about the big moral issues they're facing today. Um, However, uh, we need to be clear. I mean, be clear in in being clear. That is to say, we don't want to just spout our opinions or we want to say, here is what the church teaches. And I think uh, bishops and, and, and the Pope certainly need extra caution before they speak but they probably should speak. I'm trying to find the balance, but I don't want to just uh, be talking out of both sides of my mouth saying, they need to speak up more. Where are they? They're being silent, you know? And then on the other hand, tell them to talk less. Um, Maybe what I mean is talk more carefully, especially if you are a higher ranking prelate. Anyway, just a thought. All right, well, let's let's pray for this. This uh, bishop, and I, I pray that he uh, stays faithful, and that's our that's our hope. And I mean, I think I think it's just look, you know, for any bishop and any priest, I mean, ourselves included, we all we're all fallible creatures. Uh, we all mess it up, and I'm I'm sure I've said things that were confusing at times, and I had to clarify it. We all can make mistakes, but I think what I'm hearing over and over again is like people want to be convicted that what we teach is absolutely true. You know, and I and I think that's the bottom line. And I just pray that you know this this new the Holy Spirit helps this uh, you know this this bishop to to be faithful to his office. And maybe I, I and that's it's our prayer. You know that he comes out and maybe the Holy Spirit's like, hey man, um, I know with Thomas to Beckett, you know, and then you know when they they were at odds, and then when when once they were put in in the firing squad, they did what was right and holy. So that's our yeah, so, exactly. All right, Monsignor, can you give us a blessing? Yes. And uh, I'll also ask a prayer like you did uh, for our, our new prefect here, uh, uh, Arch, Archbishop, the Arch, good Archbishop of um, the new of the Dicastery. Uh, Lord, anoint him with the Holy Spirit and um, preserve him from speaking uh, erroneously, as I ask the same for myself. Um, assist him also to be courageous and to pronounce your teachings and um, assist me the, the same way, assist all of us who have any teaching role in the church. So uh, may he be blessed, may we all be blessed, and may Almighty God bless everyone who has listened to this podcast, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. All right.